0: Everybody and welcome
1: to the Syria Security Seminar here at Purdue University. It's my great, great pleasure to introduce today Professor Nora Riffon from Michigan State University. And the thing that I actually got very interested in, the research that she's doing, is because I, I've always been very interested in... Uh, uh, psychology uh, but I've never seen that applied in security context and uh, Professor Rifan is going to talk today about network security begins at home how to change consumer behavior for eye safety and the last thing that I would like to mention is that she also has a very interesting background uh, started in psychology has a PhD in management and today is going to tell us how to apply all these techniques uh, in the context of security and privacy thank you thank you very much I guess I'm going to stay still, which is hard for me, because when I lecture, I usually walk around, so I'll hope I don't <laughs> fidget too much. Um, as Christina said, my name is Nora Rifan. I'm a professor at Michigan State University. I happen to be in, not in computer science, but in the Department of Advertising, Public Relations, and Retailing, which betrays my background, which is actually in psychology and in business. So my doctorate is in an area where I studied mostly marketing, and became a consumer behavior expert, and over the years, my interests evolved to where I find myself today studying privacy and security. And uh, I have some interesting stories about being a duck out of water, or being yeah, and or fish out of water, and sitting in NSF panels with all the computer scientists saying, "How did you get here? What are you doing here?" And I said. I got this Cybertrust award, and they all said, oh, Cybertrust, and I thought, okay, I belong now. So that sort of was my, I think, my certification to belong to the club, maybe. Anyway, so today I'm going to talk about an approach that I've developed along with some colleagues at Michigan State, and it's an approach that examines, go right ahead, I can pause a minute, sure, no problem. It's an approach that's looking at privacy and security issues in a more global sense that tries to incorporate some psychological paradigms into this this problem. I do want to acknowledge uh, my colleagues. In particular, my colleague Bob LaRose, who uh, I would, as a co-share, we're both uh, a part of this development and the ideas, Richard Enbody, who is our computer scientist, and I also want to acknowledge the support we've had recently from Cybertrust and Microsoft Research. We're very lucky to, to have some funding from these groups who have allowed us to actually do some of the things we really want to do. I think what I'd first like to do is introduce you to the concept of privacy as we conceptualize it and then sort of lead you through what my experiences have been that got me to looking at security. So I started out studying privacy. And you can see from the slide that privacy actually is multidimensional and not everybody recognizes this. I think many people think of privacy as informational privacy, so that consumers uh, you know, protecting their information from those terrible database uh, managers. But it's really multidimensional, so that you can talk about your physical privacy and w- wanting to be alone physically, psychological privacy, where you have control of your own thoughts and emotions. And you might say, how could you not? But I can tell you that are probably Holocaust survivors who will tell you that was a struggle, or other people who have been imprisoned or places where... Uh, control is a very important issue over your thoughts and your emotions. And then finally, the one that we're all familiar with is informational privacy or, to some people, trying to maintain anonymity. And that means controlling one's personal information. Essential to understanding privacy and studying privacy is to recognize that this is really a discussion of boundary maintenance. We assume that there are boundaries between the individual and other forces in the environment and in the world and privacy itself is giving control of that boundary maintenance to the individual. Much of the work in privacy really originated in the area of database marketing and consumer privacy. And it's still a recent, recent area of study, and I'd say it was only in the late 90s that people began in marketing to talk about data privacy and informational privacy, consumer privacy. Within this context, we define consumer privacy as control over the unwanted presence in the environment, and control over information that's obtained during marketing transactions. And I think you're all probably pretty familiar with that. So, for instance, recently if you go anywhere to purchase something, you, you go to a true brick-and-mortar institution, you don't buy it online, and they say, can I have your phone number? And most people say, well, okay, what's that for? And someone like me says no. And what do you need that for? And it's marketing research, it's it's identification. I go to Toys R Us, Toys R Us says, we need that because if we get your phone number, that's your ID tag that we have in our database. And if we know you're here, we're gonna send you a coupon. Hmm, that's part of what the dilemma is that I'm gonna talk about today is how much do people want to give up for so little? And what does that have to do with boundary management? And what does that have to do with security as well? Anyway, so consumer privacy started out as our paradigm. And what I wanted to tell you a little bit about was how I came to study this, because I really was studying other problems. Uh, privacy and security was the farthest thing from my mind. I was a consumer researcher and I studied a lot of consumer protection and regulation issues. I studied things like the Nutrition, Labeling and Education Act. Things that you, you know would say, well, what does that have to do with this? It turns out that the State Attorneys General, I think 48 of them, wrote a letter to the head of the FTC a few years back saying it's time that we create privacy policies in line with things like the NLEA and demanding that other regulatory um, models be used for privacy. Well, so here I was working in one area and the Attorney General of the State of Michigan approached me and said, would you please work with us for a few months? We want to know what should a policy agenda be for the coming few for the coming years. And after working with them for a few months, I said to them, "I think you're telling me that consumer privacy issues are growing in in, in numbers and that they're never going to go away." And they said, "That's true." And then it turned out that our attorney general, Jennifer Granholm, turned began uh, became our governor. <laughs> She's now Governor Granholm, and so. She does have this as a policy agenda, unfortunately we have other economic issues that prevent her from doing too much about privacy. But so my interest was peaked, and I could see that this was a new area where a lot of people weren't there yet. Nobody was really talking about this in in the right way, so I started studying. So at first I really looked at privacy policies, I looked at regulation, I was looking at, and what I have here is a list of some things that I studied in some of my research. And trust signals and warning information really constituted the beginning of my looking at consumer privacy. And what that means is I looked at how do consumers respond to signals on websites that communicate about privacy and trust. So I I worked in that area. I've studied um, a little bit about what privacy policy should be. In particular, I was invited to also evaluate the state of Michigan, for its privacy policies and procedures in terms of citizen information. So at a very high level, I've also been involved in looking at what are policies that should be enacted for the protection of citizen information. And if some of you really knew how much information the state had, you wouldn't care about marketers, believe me. Because what states have about you, and it's not managed very well in any state, that's a real threat to your privacy, probably more so than, than what uh, Toys R Us has. So I started looking at these things. i um, <clears throat> give you a brief summary of what I found in those areas. And I, uh, One paper was published a year ago in the Journal of Consumer Affairs. Some of the other papers I'm referring to here are still in the bottleneck. They're in press. But one of the things I found was that consumers pretty much misinterpret these signals. They look at privacy seals and what what most often happens is the privacy seal will actually increase disclosure and trust and so that even if there's no privacy policy, there's absolutely no information about what the website actually does, this consumer, a typical consumer will say this website, uh, pardon me, a trustee seal is a signal that this website is less likely to collect my information and then go share it with others. That's absolutely false because what those privacy seals Uh, indicate is that that web proprietor purchased the right to use the seal and post it and has agreed to abide by the Federal Trade Commission's fair information practice standards. Those fair information practice standards say nothing about how much data you can or cannot collect. It only says that a web proprietor needs to post or should post what they intend to collect, how they intend to collect it, who they're going to share it with, and a few other things. So basically, they're really not rules of conduct. They're rules of notice. So the fair practice standards are really rules of how a web proprietor should inform internet users about what they're doing. But people look at a trustee seal and they see the good housekeeping seal of approval. Oh, this is a safe place. So that's that's not true. We saw that um, this was even more true for people who um, had low levels of what we call efficacy. And that's an important construct I'm going to talk about today a little bit later in detail. But a psychological concept that we work with is privacy self-efficacy. And that's really an individual's self-perception of their ability to enact appropriate behaviors to protect their privacy. Most people have a very inflated view of what that is. So that they think they know more than they do. And yet, even when you ask them, they still know very little. So this is troubling. We did another study, and this will be coming out in the spring, where we created a warning label. We thought about the nutrition labeling, the NLEA. Let's create a warning label. What will that do? Will it help consumers make sense of this situation? And so we created a box where on... The, uh, your left side, it would say, If you share this information here 's the benefit you might receive from the website here 's the risk that you 're taking and it was all we did we said here 's a benefit here 's a risk by doing this this behavior in disclosing this information. You can see I don't, uh, you can see that when people had a high sense of privacy advocacy, which means I can protect myself, the warning didn 't make a difference. But for the people who are most vulnerable, the people who say, I really don't know what to do, this warning label actually reduced their disclosures. And I think that's a good thing. I'm sure the e-commerce people and web proprietors would say, I'm not sure I like that. That's not fair. But we offer benefits and risks. We didn't just offer the benefits that appear in privacy policies. And um, that's another study we did that will be coming out in the spring, where we analyzed the content of privacy policies we found that privacy policies don't just tell consumers, here's what we'll collect, here's what we're going to do with it. They offer so many reassurances. We really care about your privacy here at blah, blah, blah.com. And so we view, this, um, <clears throat> we view privacy policies, and it's our position, as persuasive tactics. And so as a consumer protection person, I mean, I view many of the self-regulatory system to really benefit the industry, which I think they're stakeholders, but to some extent right now, the Federal Trade Commission policies that are, and again, only implemented through self-regulation, there's no enforcement, they can't penalize them if they don't do it. But those policies are not necessarily having the intended effects of protecting consumers, they're misleading consumers. So. This was what I had done in my early days of of work on privacy. Um, as time went on, again Bob and I we, we would talk a lot and say, "You know, you know the marketers' are really the only bad guys, and and how bad a bad guy is that when internet malfeasance was rising, and so we started to rethink the problem in that sense. you know, is it marketers, or what about these ID thieves? they're the really the bad guys." Or what about hackers or the malware promulgators and now phishers, another area that we're looking at. So we thought, what's the bigger problem? And is it just privacy or are we looking at boundary maintenance, privacy and security of the entire network as a whole? And how can we relate individual privacy protection behaviors to protecting the network as a whole? So we tried to, again, reconceptualize this whole issue, also in part because Cybertrust doesn't want to fund privacy as such. They like to fund security. So we said, you know, we know there's a link. What is that? Well, the framework that, that we're using really sort of speaks to the notion that if we're to really study privacy and security, there should be some kind of triangulation here where... We know we've studied how privacy, pardon me, how policy and regulation is having effects or not having effects. You guys study all the technological solutions. But what's really missing still is how. Internet user behaviors, and that's what is their response to the regulatory solutions, which I have looked at, but then what about response to the technical solutions? That's something that we weren't looking at, and when I say technical solutions, typically the technical solutions are security solutions. So. We conceptualized this as the network comment, and we coined the term, because I'm a marketing person, Coined it iSafety before anybody else used it, but we didn't copyright it, so go figure. iSafety, which represents the individual on the internet protecting his or her own information. And what we set out to do was to translate network security into an individual behavioral issue. How can we better protect the network commons by understanding individual behaviors? I mean, if you think about it, there probably would be no virus problems if people didn't send them on. If every individual knew how to not pick up a worm or a virus, and I don't even know the difference between worms and Trojans and all of this stuff, so don't ask me, but I don't need to. What I know is what I shouldn't do if I want to get one. You know you know how to wash your hands to not get a cold. So what do you do to not catch a virus and spread it? What are those things? So if each and every individual understood his or her role, they would not only protect themselves, but we'd actually be protecting each other. So we try to look at the problem in this way and translate those issues into individual issues. Okay. So the focus then that we took is to understand privacy and security, again, as boundary maintenance, and boundary maintenance means how does an individual work with their computer to manage and control what comes in and what goes out. So some of that is information, and usually related to that information will also be some type of security violation, so they really go hand in hand. And we thought that what we really wanted to do was to examine how human behaviors related to not just the technical fixes, but also just the everyday things. So, basically, having this, like again, the triangle between a technical fix, a policy effort, and what the individual does with all this information. Okay, and I think this, to me, describes it. In, in very basic terms, if you ha- I don't know if you've seen Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. And he's a farmer, and he hears voices, he's, and they say, if you build it, they will come, and he's supposed to build the baseball field, and then all the ghosts of the great baseball players come down to earth to play baseball for him. And I thought in my mind, because oh, I'm a, a movie buff, so of course I think in these terms, well, if you build it, will they come? Okay, so you build a better mousetrap, you build a better uh, firewall, who's going to use it? Is it really, you know, it only works as well as the person who's actually going to work with that firewall. So technical technical solutions are essential. But what I'm focused on is will people adopt them, will they use them, and what can we do to encourage people to do that, to participate in their own self-protection? Another way to think about this is we all understand—you some more than I—automated fixes that are technical fixes. We, you know, set your virus—you know—updates to update automatically on a Friday night when you're not using your computer, or Saturday night. Let's do that. Um, check your spyware. Make sure you run your scans. Have everything done on some kind of schedule automatically without thinking. We need to think the same way about human behaviors because there's a person who has to do those things. And so can we create safe habits? I mean, that's what we're talking about. Automated, automatic behaviors are habits. And I will tell you that habits are very hard to develop. And what, we're going to, what I'm going to talk about, too, is how we're going to have to break some bad ones, too. And habit strength is an important term that we use in a lot of psychological models that talks about how The greater the habit strength, first of all, the harder it is to break that habit. But in terms of using technical fixes, you're asking somebody to develop habits that will be very difficult to develop because they just don't want to do it. So I'll I'll talk about that in more detail. So consider what I'm trying to do is to get people to behave automatically the way you get your systems to behave automatically to make everything run smoothly. Okay, so how do we create safe behavior? And this is where we're really studying now with our NSF work and our, our Microsoft work. Uh, I've talked with a lot of people, some here and some other places, and nobody can seem to understand why can't we just put the knowledge out there? Why, you know, there they know it. We can teach them. There you go. Why don't you do it? It doesn't work. Knowledge alone does not suffice because we're talking about a very complex human problem that isn 't as simple as saying here here 's the information use it. This is a very complex problem. It has parallels in other areas of human behavior and in areas where we have some theories and so what we set out to do is identify what are the factors that are influencing why or why not pe- why or why not people are doing these things or want to do these things. And if we can create the model, if we can actually identify the factors, how important each one is in getting that end result, then we can actually target them and target them with certain appeals. And that's another issue is you might understand how the system works, how the person works, then it's a whole other set of studies to say, how do I speak to that and change it? That's another area. So what are those challenges? What are the challenges to eye safety that make it such a big deal that it isn't just here's a sheet of things, a checklist, go do it? Human nature, that's that's the answer right there. Human nature is such that that's not how people work. People are very complex. If we look at the nature of this problem in particular, security is a highly technical problem. The skill sets. The knowledge sets that people have to have to properly enact those behaviors are incredibly complex. Maybe not to you. I study this, and I'm one of the experts. I am the expert in my house. I'm the expert on the floor where I work, and I don't know anything compared to you guys. It's a very complex problem. So, that's number one. Number two, now we're really going to talk about human nature and what makes this challenging. Consider the link between a safety behavior, and then the consequence of that behavior or the outcome. There are a lot of theories that we rely on, that I'll talk a little bit about later, that emphasize the role of behavior linked to consequences. For example, if you were, um, you know, a rat running a maze would give you a piece of cheese and you'd do it again. People are no different. People seek desirable consequences. They avoid undesirable consequences. However, if you remove in time and experience the behavior that brings about the consequence, they can't make the link. They can't learn. So you consider, we couple the fact that it's very distant, and if I say to you, how would you explain to somebody, use your virus software, and they say, well, what will that do? And you'll say, well, you won't get a virus. That's not really the the way it is experienced. The way it's experienced is, well, you're telling me to do something that might prevent something that could possibly sort of happen, and I'm not really sure how that's going to hurt me anyway, so why should I do this? And that's really what's happening. And so some of that has to do with the nature of these consequences. First of all, they're in the future. They're down the road. If you don't put somebody's consequence in their face in the moment the behavior happens... You must engage higher-order cognitive processing that takes lots of effort. That means somebody's got to want to do it, and most people don't. Imagine how you feel when you plop yourself at home watching a television program at the end of the day and you're very tired. Do you want someone to come tell you why you should use this new product because it's going to make your teeth nice and white and clean? No. So they play a jingle and a song and they make you feel really good about it and say it a hundred times so you walk away and you know the brand. That's how people learn. People don't learn by sitting and exerting lots of effort on a subject that they don't care about. Think of a subject you guys took in school and you sat in the class. You said, I'm going to shoot myself, like you feel right now as I'm talking, because who cares about psychology, right? God, oh, dead. This is what this problem is for many people. It is for me. I don't want to know how to do a firewall, thank you. But I do it, Okay, I have to do it because I know it's important. The average person doesn't understand why it's important. They can't feel why it's important. So the consequence is way down in the future. It's uncertain. And it's intangible. Because the consequence of enacting safe behavior is absolutely nothing. Okay, so nothing happened. So I don't get an experience. So you have to cognitively create an experience for someone to say, oh, I know this was a good thing. That's a real challenge. That's a real challenge. So imagine... I mean, there are, there are parallels here when we talk about health promotion and behaviors that people take to prevent illness at a later date. I don't know how many of you in the room smoke cigarettes. And some of you might say, oh, I only have a couple here and there. Well, you're not supposed to smoke cigarettes because somewhere down the road, maybe kind of who knows when, you could possibly have lung cancer. It's the same thing with virus software. It's the same thing with uh, eye safety. It's that you're asking people to change their behavior to do something that will protect them so that they have no result. All of human behavior in every domain that asks people to do this typically fails. It's very hard to have people do this. Okay. Okay, The other challenge that we face to eye safety is competing motives. Internet users are not online because they say, oh, I'm concerned for my privacy and security. I better attend to it. They're online because they want to go shopping. They're online because they're looking for information. They're online because they want to play games. They're online because they don't want to be bothered with all this stuff, but they want to do something else. When people have competing motives, what happens is um, motivation is a really key component because motivation is something that's going to energize, drive, and direct people's behaviors. I'm online because I want to go play Warcraft, whatever the heck that thing is. Too, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's the Warcraft world, or maybe you don't know, and I can't remember the exact name. But it was on. It was on. I hate to say it was on South Park the other night, so I saw it. Uh, yes, I watched South Park. So they want to go play games. They want to download music. They want to f- share files. Kids want music. They don't care. Oh yeah, my friend's sending me this file, and you say no, 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 no. Do you know the source? Do you know it's clean? And the kid's saying, "What? Ah, it's, it's music. So the idea that there's competing motives means there are some things people want to do online that far surpasses their need to care about their privacy or security. So not only do you have to teach them to deal with something that they don't, that's a difficult situation that's hard for them to comprehend, it's also going to go against every habit that they have when they're online. So people have habits. They have their online habits. They're established, just like they have habits everywhere else. I mean, we even know that there are people who are addicted to their computer use. We know that there are people who are compulsive computer users. They can't stop. They don't want to stop. They're online. They don't have friends. Well, they do have friends. They're virtual friends. They don't have friends they can touch, feel, and see like this. They have friends on the screen. They have avatars. When we talk about eye safety, we're talking about taking um, folks who, even if they're not, say, addicted in that sense, people use the Internet for convenience. They use it for fun. They use it for all these wonderful benefits. You tell them to block pop-ups and everything. Ah, I had this happen to me, and even I said, okay, let the pop-ups come on. I want to go to foodnetwork.com and get a recipe. I have my pop ups turned off. I have my spyware blocking, double click and Avenue A and all this other stuff that it gets blocked. But I can't get a darn recipe when I want it. Somebody wants a recipe, they turn that stuff off. Okay, so the idea here is that you have people engaged in behaviors that bring them immediate benefits, things that make them feel good in some circumstances, things that make their life easier. Convenience, if you ask a consumer about things they like about products and services, always one of the number one things that always pops up these days is convenience. Convenience is the number one consumer benefit that they look for in anything. Okay, well no, I want you to check your spyware. Oh please, I've got to go do this. So we really have a challenge. And you guys can create the best safety, security software in existence, but if you want people to actually use it, it isn't just about human factors engineering. I was talking to one of the students earlier, he says, oh, so you determine should the light be blue or green, and I said, absolutely not. That's a human factors engineering piece that's product development, that's, you know, let's make the product work well so people can interact with it. This is this is beyond that. This is deeper. It goes to the core of human nature and the core of what you have to do to appeal to people. How do we convince people to become safe online? Our particular model that we call our eye safety model borrows from several different areas in psychology. Um, One of my areas of expertise as I came to this project is cognitive processing. And so um, I've, in other domains, I have modeled how people take information from the environment, from the web and other places, and how they actually create their own inferences, cognitive responses and affective responses, and how do they integrate them and bring them together to actually create new knowledge and then influence their responses. So that becomes a critical part of what we're doing, because how people process information is one of the the first pieces, is uh, what do we need to do to make that information easier to process and get them to actually work at it. It takes cognitive effort to process information. That's why it's really hard when you study at night and you're reading your books and saying, I've got to learn it, because it's hard. You're not running around, you're not working up a sweat, but your brain's saying, give me a rest already. Social cognitive behavior change. There are models that have been driven by Albert Bandura's initial social cognitive approach to, to um, human behavior. And Bandura based his work on the original work of Skinner and Thompson um, uh, operant, instrumental learning theory that says people behave, or rats, mice people, behave in ways based on the consequences they experience. So all behavior is shaped by consequences. This is a real critical piece to our puzzle. But what's a little different, what Bandura said was, uh, Skinner said people have to have the experience to have the behavior change, and clearly that's a very strong way to to create habits. But Bandura said, you know what, people have memory, people have thoughts, people can observe others and learn from other experiences to also then build this knowledge. But the emphasis still is on this. If I engage in this behavior, What consequence will I receive? And there are several uh, concepts that come up here that I'll talk about in the next slide that are really critical to understand whether or not somebody, even if they know they should do it, whether or not they actually will. And then we also look to literature on health and behavior change, and this, as I said before, the model for Eye safety is very similar to models that we use in health promotion, which is asking people to break bad habits to establish good ones for actually little immediate benefit. Um, Protection motivation is a theory that has evolved in this area that we've borrowed from and adapted and modified. And protection motivation theory says that individuals will be motivated to protect themselves only under certain circumstances. So we've put all these things together in an attempt to say, what are those key variables? Can I actually identify the characteristics of individuals, some of which might be considered personality, some of which can be learned? What are those key factors that are gonna determine whether or not somebody might engage in this behavior? These are the key ingredients. Um, last week, our uh, vice president for intellectual property, uh, the Office of Intellectual Property, called me. They, they, fund, they filed a provisional patent. And the, the, uh, the term they use is, so what's your secret sauce? And what are we patenting? And right now, what we're patenting is the very fine nuances of these key ingredients and what we do with them to create the appeals to actually get people to change their behavior. So these are the key pieces, and I, we actually don't, we have a provisional patent, so we don't really have the inventory items and everything created, but we're moving forward because I don't think, and the lawyers obviously don't think, anybody else understands this or is working on this right now. The first key is motivation. How do you make people want to do it? That's very difficult. And that's something that we have to work on. We know that motivation is key. One of the words I use for motivation is called involvement. It comes out of social psychology. And involvement is a term that represents a person's perception of the connectedness of an object or an issue to to themselves. So if you're thinking about all the political elections that are coming up in November, and you think about how important is the economy to you as an issue, your involvement with that issue would be how close to home you see that. So I am taking some liberty with that. How connected are you to safety and security issues? How close is that to you? Well, the greater the involvement with that issue, what happens is this involvement kicks in motivation. And it says, okay, i got to do something about that. It's human nature. It's, it's, it's automatic. Talking about what's automatic. When people are involved, the rest of it comes. So the, trick, so the trick here is, is there a way, I don't know if we can, can we get people involved with this issue? Because when they are, we will motivate them. Knowledge. That's obviously a key ingredient. That's basic. And I think what we're playing with is not just the knowledge, because we have people who can write down, this is how you configure a firewall, this is how you work your, you know, add-aware. this is how you work your virus protection. How do you word it so that somebody actually understands it? And how do you create some series of, say, practices that lets them then feel confident that they can do it? And I think that perhaps the biggest secrets in our secret sauce are the last two. Because the term confidence really represents the key issues that we call coping efficacy and response efficacy. Coping efficacy is the confidence a person has in his or her own abilities to perform a behavior. If you ask people, gee, do you know how to configure a firewall? Most of them are going to say, oh, what, are you crazy? Of course I don't know how. And we found that coping efficacy is a very strong determinant of what people do. If I feel I can do it, I'm more likely to do it. If I don't think I can, why should I try? There's a second kind of efficacy, which is response efficacy. That's a perception that the tool will work. That's a perception that if I actually do that behavior, will I get the results that I expect or that you've promised me. Response efficacy is actually a lot easier to create, and we found in some of my, um, our baseline studies where we're measuring these concepts, most people get response efficacy. They know if you use virus protection, it's going to work. If I use a firewall, it's going to work. If I use spyware, it's going to work. But if you ask them, do you know how, they say, well, no. Um, There are actually some other um, concepts I don't have listed here, and I'll give you one example that really frightens me. Is that when we ask people about the likelihood of of some of these security threats happening to them, most of them will say it's very low. But if you ask them how severe the consequences, most of them will say, well that's pretty rotten if that happens. But they think it won't happen to them. So We're dealing with this complexity of people thinking it won't happen. Well, yeah, it is pretty serious, but, well, I don't know what to do about it anyway, and so how am I supposed to really deal with this, please? And I think that's the challenge. So, again, working with this. The last concept that you see up there, personal responsibility, we didn't look at this. This just jumped out at us. I ran some focus groups early on. I had some people come in and I talked to them about, well, I didn't actually talk, I had a student talking to them. People as a whole do not believe it is their responsibility to protect their computer, certainly not the Internet. If you ask most of them, they'll say, it's my ISP's responsibility. It's uh, Microsoft's responsibility. Why do you want me to do this? Which is actually somewhat consistent with the other findings but it's still somewhat surprising that you can use this concept of personal responsibility in any any aspect of human life. Why would you not think this is not your responsibility? But I, I, I guess we don't know what to do with that yet. But certainly, we know it is the most personal responsibility is a major predictor of whether or not people do these things. In data we we collected and analyzed last week, we found that. We asked people uh, who was responsible themselves, or ISPs, Microsoft, whatever. We also asked them about incidents of oh, things that happened that are, you know, a reflection or an indication that they have spyware, or that something's wrong with the computer. How often have you, been, have you been redirected to another website unexpectedly? Has your computer slowed down in performance? We found that people who said that their ISPs are responsible also had a higher incidents of these problems. So that's really strong evidence that if you can convince people to feel responsible and, and teach them to be responsible, they will be. And I think that's very that's very confirming that if we can get there. And I think that's the challenge, as I said earlier, how do we get there? am aware of the time. I'll be done in two minutes. Okay, so I'll move more quickly. So targeted change. This is what we're doing now. We haven't done, we're working on a series of experiments where we are profiling our people with our secret sauce and saying, okay, where do you fit? And we're creating different educational modules that are actually using different appeals. So should we laugh about it? And I don't think humor will work, but humor is one of those things that people in advertising and in health communication use to try and distract people from something called fear. When you talk about this subject and you look at everything in health promotion, fear appeals is what everybody uses to get behavior changed. You better not do that, you're going to die. You better not do that, your computer's going to crash. And it always backfires, always. Fear appeals don't work. And that's the challenge. What do we do? Because we're talking about problems. We're talking about bad outcomes. So we're working on what are the different appeals. Uh, Trying to prioritize. Who's most likely to change? Should we work with them first? Who are the hardest people? Should we leave them alone? Marketers and advertisers leave alone the people who are hard to change. They say, you're worthless. I can't make any money on you. And maybe we can't either. But we might be able to identify people who are more likely to change. And uh, and also a, a quick one here. I think if we get to them really early, when they're young, they have a much better chance of making them more responsible by the time they're adults. Trying to change adult behaviors much harder than trying to change or create. You're not changing; you're creating habits in young kids. Sorry, it took so long. I didn't realize how late it was getting. Um, questions. I think that's it. There. Oh, pardon me. One more. Um, these are papers. Six of these papers are in the bottleneck. They're in press. And I know that at least Professor Bertino is interested in some, and I'll get them to you. We have One of them should be coming out in communications of the ACM very soon, But and it explains all these variables that I'm talking about, and, and it has our model. And uh, one of them was published last year, but all of these papers that talk about what I spoke about today will be coming out very soon, and you can contact me. Yes, question. I was just curious. You said that personal responsibility was- Issue. And would that be kind of a, the result of the lack of knowledge and a lack of self confidence that um, perhaps they couldn't control it, even if it was their responsibility? That's a wonderful question. I don't have the answer. It's something we wonder: is are they a function of each other? Um, here's what I would I think, and I'm going to speculate, which is that I think that each of us develops our own sense of personal responsibility about the world in general that comes from another place. Maybe it comes from parents. It comes from religion, whatever it is that you have, that tells you about what your job is as a human being. When it comes to these difficult issues, then I think there's going to be some effect of the variables that we've talked about. We don't know. We have to test that. And so I, I always hate going out on a limb unless I'm really confident about what I'm saying. Um, I think t- sometimes things are what we call um, reciprocal... Um, there's reciprocal interactions. In other words, well, I have this level of personal responsibility which will lead me to feel this confident, but then this level of confidence may come back and hit my personal responsibility. So I think they probably influence each other. If you could probably just grab one of them and try to tweak it, maybe the rest would change too. I don't know. I want to find out. Yes?
0: How do you see the, um, I guess I would argue that the, the in the future that our sense of privacy is kind of diminishing when you see all the news sites like uh, Facebook and stuff like that? Do you think the future generations are going to be as concerned as privacy as we are right now?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I really like that question. I recently got some data asking uh, some high school students about their perceptions of the private or public nature of their postings in MySpace and in blogs. and. Uh, thirty five to forty percent of them said that they thought what they posted was probably public information, but sixty percent didn 't say that and When asked if they thought it would be a violation for someone to go in and capture that information, use it for another reason, even the ones who knew it was public moved over and said no that 's a violation of my privacy uh, i I think that culture changes the world changes and it would be natural for this to also evolve so that people get used to the fact that their information is out there. You absolutely have no privacy. On the other hand, I happen to believe that a healthy dose of privacy is a nice thing and that I'd like to continue to sort of fight the fight a little bit. I'm not saying that we really should make privacy the be-all and end-all, but I think that uh, as a culture, we've always valued that it will change. It will change. You know, the Constitution, there's a debate the Constitution gives you a right to privacy or if it doesn't. And technically, people say it doesn't. It may give you a right not to house the Tories when they come by with their guns. But does it really give you a right to your informational privacy? Nobody seems to think it does. If you ask, I think maybe, it was a little while back now, maybe eight years ago, Harris said to people, so, If we had to write it into the Constitution today, do you think we should put in the right to privacy? And 85% said, yeah. So I think it's still an American value. Someone asked me this afternoon, what do you think about cultural differences? I think there are probably going to be very big cultural differences. For example, Asian culture is very collectivist. you know, And American culture is very individualist focused. Is it possible, I think it would be interesting, if collectivist cultures. Had less of a sense of that, but I don't. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out. There's a possibility. So, I guess I didn't really answer your question, but it's a really good one, and, and needs much discussion. <laughs> yes.
0: Um, have you ever looked at the level of perceived anonymity by the people? If so, um, how was that measured, or how was that? How did you vary it? And the second question is. Um, did you find anything that indicated if the level of technical knowledge or maybe computer efficacy affected um, the level of motivation that those people, that, that people usually have?
1: That's, I can answer the second one quicker than the first one because I forgot the first one already. I'm 50 years old, you know, the mind goes. Um, the f- efficacy, we have not done what would be called structural equation modeling of those constructs. We know they're related. What we don't know is the path. The sequence of effects and we are working on that right now so you said does efficacy influence the motivation or does motivation influence the efficacy that is a paper i am trying to sort through as we speak that i'm trying to write for a particular call a journal call because it has to do with so privacy concern which would be the motivation so are you concerned because you're concerned or are you concerned because you can do something about it uh do you feel you can do something about it that allows you to feel your concern don't have an answer, I'm sorry. But that's an essential question that we're working on. And what was your first one again? Something about how do I measure um, anonymity?
0: Yeah, perceived anonymity more than anything. I
1: haven't measured that yet. I think that's a whole other line of research right now that I think is very interesting, which is really the public-private paradox and nature of Internet use, that people uh, for the most part will tell you they feel quite anonymous when they're online. and. Uh, I would say that the Internet is one of the least private anonymous places that exists in the world that is so incredibly lacking in privacy. And I was telling some folks at lunch, and I try to teach my nine-year-old that this is a box, yes, but you know what? There are millions of people outside the box sharing the box with you. I don't know how to communicate that to a nine-year-old. I don't even think we communicate that well. To Thirty and forty-year-olds. So it's a very good question, and I have worked on some measures of perceived anonymity, but haven't quite done much with them yet. It's a good, I, good question.
0: question Want to work on it?
1: Yeah, we got, Actually, got an idea for a project. Yeah, we'll, we'll do something.
0: it's part of my dissertation, so it's very important oh, for me. Oh, very yeah. cool.
1: No, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to offer you right now. Okay. Be happy to talk to you about it, though. Anybody else?
0: Go ahead. Yep, yeah, we have a question here. So I, at the monitor. Oh, you see us? No, 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 I don't. Right down on
1: your desk. Oh, thank you. I see you. Hi.
0: Okay. Hi. So you mentioned, uh, you drew this parallel between smoking cigarettes and antivirus software. Um, and at least with smoking cigarettes and, and maybe even unprotected sex, there's, there's an incentive to, to pursue those activities because they're in some way pleasurable. Um, where's the pleasure in surfing the internet without a firewall? Where does, where does this parallel continue?
1: There are so many things I can't say because we're broadcasting this, I, I, I just can't, I, I have to, um, I, I, I was, I'll say, the first thing that came to my mind, is well, if you don't experience it, you're not doing it right. So that's number one, which, see, you're all too young to get what that means. Okay, um, if you have to ask, you're not doing it right, get it, but I'm bummed. Um Where's the pleasure in surfing without a firewall? Well, you know, a firewall is just one instance of, I you mean, know, how about spyware protection? How about blocking pop-ups? And the, the the idea is that a lot of people will you know their are surfing slows down when you begin to use some of those protections. So that that's part of it. The other thing is people don't want to take the time. You know, you're you have to you're not an average person, by God. You know, you're just not. You're gonna to have to get out of that skin and say, what is somebody who doesn't even know what a firewall is? What are they thinking about? And if you want them to stop what they're doing and spend a few hours on a Sunday to set it up and figure it out, they ain't going to do it. So in that context, that's uh, so if you use the firewall example, I would put it in that context, that you're asking somebody to go to their computer and not play with it. You're asking them to go to their computer and do something that's very trying and difficult that they don't understand. So that's the, that's the parallel. I have
0: another other question over here. Um, I'm a little confused about. I, I mean, I understand you're trying to disincent people to somehow release their information, but yet, at the end of the day, I, the problem really seems ill-defined to me because the, the concept can,
1: of the, can I ask you to stop a minute because I'm not hearing anything you're saying. I don't understand sorry. what you're saying. Speak up a little louder, maybe.
0: I'll come closer to the mic. Thank you. Uh, the The question is: is is the well definition of, is is the problem well defined? I mean, you're you're trying to prevent people from releasing certain pieces of information and thus maintain their privacy. But uh, at the end of the day, if you assume people could perfectly compute whether they should release information or not, there are times when they need to release information for legitimate reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm not
1: suggesting they shouldn't. I'm not saying that people right. should stop sharing. What I'm saying is that people should have enough knowledge and ability so that they can make a choice. That's all. But, informed decision making.
0: But what I'm saying is let's say they can, they're perfectly informed it still seems to me that the issue is that if there's amalgamation of data on the other end, uh, you can't prevent... uh, I mean, you can't be informed because you can't know how the amalgamations will possibly occur.
1: Let's, Let's explore that last part. I think I know what you mean, but I'm not clear, and I need a little bit more from you on that. So you're saying that individuals don't understand... Databases and what they mean. If information is collected well, from them, what do you suggest? I'm not a computer needs, geek. You got to tell me yeah, what you okay. mean.
0: Okay. My, my medical doctor needs to know my health records. Okay. Right. I mean, he cannot do his job, so I need right. to release that information to him. He Only needs if to know you choose to. Well, yeah, but the the option the, the alternative is often death. Right? I mean, they, I, I think you're being very black and white in your thinking,
1: which is why we have this problem. You need to listen up a bit. Okay, but it's not death. It's that maybe I won't be treated by that doctor and I'll find another one. So no, I'm no, sorry, just, go ahead with your example. So I give okay. him my information because I want to be treated. Go
0: ahead. Right. So I, I have cancer. The oncologist needs to know what type of cancer, so he needs to see my MRI. All of that needs to be stored. Okay. Now, if there's nothing preventing that doctor from now taking that and sending it to 50 other companies, mm-hmm. then even though I had to release that information to the doctor for, for being cured, then even innocuous data that I might release to other companies that, that, that I, I can be completely informed of and thinking that if there's no such amalgamation, it's perfectly legitimate to release it, yes. it now becomes dangerous. So yes. it's really an issue of controlling the data once people who legitimately have a need to know it, know it. And, and that's not a psychological issue, but. Well, I I, I totally
1: disagree with you. I think that's another dimension of the problem. You're talking about the sharing now. But people can't share what they can't do. If you don't disclose, then it can't be shared. And I agree with you that teaching people about sharing and all those other issues becomes important too, and we're not talking about not teaching them that. So um, if I understand you right. So I I disagree with you. I think that the, the approach that we're taking brings it back to the place where the person can have control. Now, if you say to me, I'm on the other end and somebody's you know, not telling me and they're doing it anyway, well, that's just wrong and that's fraud and that's a bad guy. And so what we want to do is help people to understand those situations. And I, in a way, I agree with you that those are things people don't understand. I don't think the experts understand. Well, I had this conversation with Professor Clifton today. So how much is your information worth if you want to buy it? You know, if somebody wants to buy it for me, what, what do you want to pay me so that I can actually release it to you and not worry about it? Or the idea of, we do have now ways to de-identify large databases so that individuals can't be plucked out and you say, oh, this is Nora, she lives at this address and she's got this, she's going to have this surgery done, blah, blah. Well we can de-identify it so that's not given away. But To be really tough about this, privacy means I have a choice that I don't have to give that away if I don't feel like it. That's not your business. And I think that that has to be where we start. I still believe that. I'm not saying that people shouldn't give away anything, but what I'm saying is they should have the right to do that and then have choices. And to agree with you, we need to educate people about those databases. Now, I spoke to, I actually had this experience a few years back where somebody from some federal agency, probably NIH, was speaking to us about something. And he said that individual patients didn't have the right to privacy because there was a social contract between patients and the medical uh, system so that if medical researchers were ever to advance and do, do good in the world, then they had to have all that data, and patients did not have the right to say they don't want to participate. I was floored. I don't agree with that. So some of this maybe I don't know if we're disagreeing in principle or policy or values, but I do think that has to be part of the discussion. It's just not where my head's at this month. Does that answer your question? More um, than you wanted.
0: <laughs> well, I guess I still just, I, I mean... The issue is is i don 't think even perfectly informed people that, that can sort of predict all consequences Oh absolutely actually, not. can actually insist that their data will remain private
1: but that doesn 't mean I should throw the problem away that 's the baby out with the bathwater yep people aren 't perfect they can 't figure it out, but that doesn 't mean i 'm not going to try to help them. The Federal Trade Commission has a reasonable standard for consumer decision making they say the reasonable consumer is a person who is informed and can make a good choice. If you don't assume that, you begin to lose a system that can protect the average individual. No, the average individual isn't so reasonable. No, the average individual doesn't have perfect knowledge. But right now, those are the standards that we go by for the, the goal or the ideals for trying to get people to protect themselves. If I don't, I know, I mean, I, but this is what the implication of what you're saying is paternalism. The implication of what you're saying is if I assume people can't make the choices for themselves, then I'm going to come in and do it for them. So I'll pat them on and I say, now, now, you're not reasonable. I'm going to take care of you. I'll tell you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And that's something I can't do. And I, th- that's a values dilemma. It's a regulatory issue dilemma. So they're good questions. I just don't agree with you. So, yes, anyone else? I'm sorry, I can't I see. I have
0: a question. Can you hear me? Just about. And, OK, um, my question is, you talked about um, the states have information on the citizens. Um, is there any way that the citizens can find out what what information is compiled on them, and if they want to, to get this information, is it our right to have it and not the state's right?
1: What did you do? That's what I want to know. Uh, can you? That was a joke, but I'm fine. That's a state-by-state issue. There is no regulation that the feds have that cuts across the states. There are some privacy rules, certainly, that are, that the states have to abide by. But presently, as far as I know, most states have um, either disaggregate or uh, they have an enterprise architecture that pretty much doesn't even exist, put it that way. That, you know, they've just got databases all over the place. So if you wanted to know what's been collected about you, you'd probably have to fill out a FOIA form, Freedom of Information Act, and probably hand it out to every single agency and say, so what have you got on me? Uh, there is no rule that says they have to tell you everything, as far as I know. In 2004, this is what I can tell you that I do In 2004, the National Association of State Chief Information Officers, which is sort of a trade association for all the CIOs for every state in the United States. They got together and said, we need to harmonize our policy of FIPs with the Federal Trade Commission's FIP standards. And what that meant was they issued a very thick document saying, okay, you need to, t- to do things like notice, you need to give people choice, you need to give people access, you need to give people redress, you need to provide security. And so far, pretty much every state said, that's really great, we'd love to do that, who's going to pay for it? And I have this conversation once a month with the head of the Department of Information Technology in the state of Michigan who asked me, please come in and help us, and I say, you know, this is what you got to do, and they say, and who's going to pay for it? Ask the people in Michigan who's going to pay for it, will they pay another five cents if I want to give them this, or what's it going to cost? So. That's, you know, if you wanted to, you could probably spend a lot of time and track it down through FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. Otherwise, there's absolutely nothing to help you out right now. Anybody else? Gloom and doom. Yes.
0: We've got time for one more question. You mentioned something that, going back to a much earlier part of the talk, you talked about privacy policies being a marketing tool. Yes. And Every privacy policy I've read coming from banks or whatever has this long list of things they can do with your data, yeah. Impl- you know, kind of implying, oh, this is all we'll do with it. And then at the end, there's this little clause, or anything
1: else allowed by law. Well, so what do you want me to say? Yes.
0: <laughs> Does that really mean that basically what that privacy policy says is we're going to do anything with the data we you know, please?
1: To my knowledge. That's, um, those, people don't read that fine print. And even if they do, people want their credit cards and they want those relationships, so they give it up. Um, Yes, the privacy policy, um, when it comes to banks, that's different. When it comes to banks, insurers, and other financial agents, they've got to conform to Graham-Leach-Bliley, which is this whole federal regulation that regulates financial information. And when, you know, HIPAA does, does health. But when it comes to actually just the policy about, say, things that aren't covered by Gramm-Leach-Bliley, they can do what they want. And when I say that they are marketing tools, I actually, I'll be very honest, I was really thinking more about websites than I was. Those big, those long fine print things that you get in the mail, which really cover my Backside tools. I have to follow what the federal government tells me. I'm going to send you this to tell you. And what's the first thing they say? We here at joeblow.com or Joe Blow Insurance, we care about your privacy. We're going to protect it to the full extent possible. In doing that, we may collect the name of your firstborn, what color eyes she has, what she likes to eat, and don't worry, we'll protect it, but every once in a while we may have to share it with our treasured partners. And, you know, so It means anybody who wants it and pays a dime for it can have it. So not to be extreme in that statement, but I do believe, I think you may even know that better than I, Professor Clifton, how that's probably true. So yes, I think they're marketing tools to assuage uh, risk perceptions and concern about privacy. Anybody else? Social engineering, I'm telling you, we need social engineers now. That's my next, that's my my call. I know you guys say, ah, you're a psychologist, I'm a social engineer. You're welcome, thank you for having me.